there, listener, and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. You're listening to your host, Will Davis-Coleman, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Courtney. Hey, Will, how you doing? Too bad, not too bad. Looking forward to your final episode and the final episode of this mini-series today. Yeah, man, so, I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. really thought about that, but it is the end of the series. I really enjoyed it, surprisingly. Yeah, I thought, it, I thought battles good. would be too, I don't know, obvious or too simple, but we've some we found some really weird ones so it's been quite enjoyable i have to admit, i was a bit reluctant when you first suggested it but actually it's been really really fun to dive into and yeah we found some cool stuff and we hope you guys at home have also enjoyed learning about the quirky battles that our ancestors fought all that time ago um if you are new to the podcast please go back and listen to other series that we've done we've done some on i think we've done two series on assassinations throughout history yes and another series on cities, which we absolutely, definitely, hundred percent recommend. Um, so yeah, go back and listen to those. And we have uh, <laughs> more we than the assassins ones, surprisingly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, we also have an Instagram where we post up all sorts of pictures from each episode, and also a few quirky facts just to keep you guys entertained in our off seasons, which can be quite long. Sorry if uh, <laughs> we're sort of talking at the end of our recording season, which means it's been a very long time since we actually <laughs> put anything out there. So apologies and well done for, for you know, persevering and holding on. Um, we hope yeah, it's so made it worth hand- it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our handle on Instagram is at Cloak and Dagger Podcast. And yeah, go go give us a like and a follow. And also, you can find us, well, obviously, you found us on whatever podcast you're listening to. Um, but yeah, we, we'd really appreciate it if you give us a, a, a rate. I almost said a five-star rating there. I mean, obviously, we'd love a five-star rating. They, I mean, they, uh, yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just do that. Give us a five-star rating. Don't think about it. Um, and also, fact, I think that's, I think that's the only thing friends. you can give. You can only give five-star ratings, I believe. I, th- I think somehow we've worked that out with uh, all the podcatchers that it, it can only be a five-star rating. If it looks like you're giving us a four-star rating, it won't work and you will have to give us a five-star rating, just yeah. just to be clear. Exactly, yeah. And then we can also give you star ratings back as listeners. So yeah, definitely. Like we'll Airbnb. definitely do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't see it, uh, don't blame us. Don't blame Apple or your email services. We definitely gave you five-star reviews on the back. I wish we could. That'd be quite fun, actually. I mean, I don't know who wouldn't ever give their own listeners less than five stars, but but maybe they would, but we wouldn't because we're we care about you guys. We've got massive halos over our heads, our podcasting yes. heads. Uh... <laughs> um, and also, as we talk um... about battles and assassinations <laughs> and bloody murders, yeah. So true. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, uh, also, if you ever want to get in touch, guys, you can always DM us on Instagram. We love to hear from you. Um, any suggestions for future podcasts? We'll be hopefully going into a cities season later on in this year. So if you have anything, any stories from your hometown, home city, write in and we'll see if we can include it um, in the next series. So yeah, without yeah. further ado, this is uh, Patrick's final episode. So uh, take it away, man. Thank you. So for my final episode and the final episode of our battle season, we will be going to a place that we haven't actually properly done before. We've done some small snippets uh, here and there, but for given how big this place is, it's remarkable that we haven't done any episodes located here because for this episode, I will be looking at China, more specifically ancient China and a battle that was known as the Battle of Red Cliffs, which is quite interesting. And I should clarify because... 
something we wanted to do in this series was focus on the kind of lesser known battles, the kind of more strange ones that are kind of on the fringe and hopefully our audience won't know about. And to be honest, I feel like a lot of our audience might not know about this battle, but if you are from China or for most of Asia, you're probably very well aware of this battle. So hopefully, even if you if you do know the story, it's a, it's going to be a fun tale and hear us talking about it. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm enjoying to... Um, Looking forward to bringing this tale of a battle to a more Western audience, which I think most of our audience are anyway. So hopefully it should be something you haven't heard before. Looking forward to it. I've never heard of it. So, uh, yeah, take it away. I'm going to enjoy it. Oh, this. good. That would have been really disappointing if you had, because <laughs> it kind of ruined the whole thing. Um, I just have yeah. fake oohs and ahs all the way through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all I need. I don't actually need you anymore. Just oohs and ahs. That'll be, that'll be grand. Um, all right, let's dive into it. So, yes, today, as I said, we will be journeying to ancient China for a battle known as the Battle of Red Cliffs. And to start us off, similarly to some of the other episodes, and I think maybe our new style, is that I will be starting with our walkthrough for today, Um, which I think it does sound cool if we start that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually, I think we're learning on the job, as we always have been, and this is definitely the proven path into our episodes now slowly one day we will finally release a good podcast we're getting there we're i'd say we're low to moderate at the moment but we're slowly getting better as soon as we're in person you'll see a massive uptick in in quality as well yes yes and to clarify in person together we we won't be doing this in your own living rooms although you know if 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 that's if that's what our listeners want we will comply to get those five stars we will do that oh how how desperate are we for those ratings (laughs) very desperate very desperate i mean but but regardless i will start with the walkthrough (laughs) um uh, unless you guys don't want me to didn't hear anything i think we're good um so (laughs) today's walkthrough we will be following a general by the name of huang gai as the sun sets on a cold winter night in central china and huang gai is marching with purpose through an encampment on the banks of this massive river Now, Huang Gai is a tall and very well-built man in around about his mid-50s, so a slightly older gentleman, um, but still uh, high up in rank. And Huang Gai was actually born into poverty, but had been able to rise through the ranks to a position of authority within the army of the warlord Sun Xuan, who will be important later in our story. But, so we're starting with Huang Gai, and just to give an idea of how he would look, uh, because you always describe how your walkthroughs look, and I I always want to now get that. Um, But Huang Gai would be wearing kind of loose-fitting hemp underclothes. There would be some generals wearing silk, but given Huang Gai had been come up from poverty, he would probably be still wearing a kind of more simple attire, such as uh, kind of what would be made out of hemp. Uh, But he would also be wearing a very heavy set of what was known as lamella, armor which is if you've seen uh 
kind of ancient Chinese warriors and soldiers, you'll have an idea of what this looks like because this is plate armor which is made up of lots of small rectangular metal plates laced together in horizontal rows. So if you think kind of the terracotta soldiers, uh, if anyone's ever seen any films or video games or anything with kind of ancient Chinese warriors, this is the kind of style they went for and this is the kind of military uniform they would be wearing, which Huang Gai would definitely be wearing. As he is an officer, he would probably, rather than it being like adorned, it would just be heavier iron and just sort of possibly a bit of steel as well. So iron and steel are kind of hard to come by in this region of the world, so it's not quite like Europe where you get tons of huge plate metal armour. Um, so it's really only for the officers that you get this really strong armour. A lot of the foot soldiers would actually be in leather, which, you know, some protection but not quite as much. And the soldiers around Huang Gai uh, would also be quite of a, a few of them would be recognisable to him. He would know some of them. He would probably get on very well with them. He would be commanding a few of them. Uh, but a lot of this encampment would be made up by complete strangers to him because this army that Huang Gai is currently part of is actually a coalition force. So there are soldiers from all across China in this camp and kind of fighting together in this kind of uneasy alliance that Huang Gai and his, uh, his lord, Sun Xuan, have joined up to. But we'll get more into that later. But if you can imagine a kind of tense atmosphere, if you can, like, okay. you, know, you know, there's lots of soldiers who kind of are on paper working together, but it wouldn't be, this is a very volatile part in Chinese history, so it wouldn't be so bizarre to think that some of these soldiers may have fought against each other, possibly whether they'd recognize each other or anything like that, but it would be a bit of a tense atmosphere, I'd say. So like the, is it like a sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of vibe? Yes, very much so. Not quite as much as if you listen to the uh, Castle Itter or the enemy, the enemy of the Enemy episode from earlier in this season. Not quite as intense as that, but certainly some uh, a kind of a strange atmosphere and possibly a little heated uh, elements between the two uh, parties. Um, but they are all officially fighting on the same side, uh, along with Hong Gai. So, as he's coming back, so Hong Gai is actually coming back from the main command tent, where he has just been having a rather public argument with his superiors, and he's stormed off and is now headed to the shore, where his men have actually been preparing a small squadron of ships that he will command. But so, you know, in this very heated moment, in this very tense atmosphere, Hong Gai is not getting apparently not getting on very well with his superiors and again possibly building some more tension and a another reason why there's probably a quite a bunch of tension uh, in this camp is that once Huang Gai reaches the river he might stop to warm his hands up over a campfire and look across the river to the thousands of fires in the distance that outline that outline a host that is about five times the size of the army uh, on his side so there is this oh huge force uh, looming on the horizon that is just waiting to attack them so it's a scary time to be to be a soldier in this army yeah it sounds like it i had a question um so i didn't know sure. that, like, nothing about china but um you said that he came up through the ranks so was it like a was it like a meritocracy system is it like could you do that often yeah a little bit i think in this period of time in particular because the, and we'll get into it a bit later about the kind of politics of this time, but the general feeling uh, is a bit more world flipped on, on its head. You know, the, the, the kind of standard 
hierarchies have kind of been broken up a bit and so a man like one guy could rise through the ranks i think there is always kind of a bit of that as well um similar to how we talked about uh in uh, our ninja episode and our kind of japanese history every time we touched on that there is this kind of upward uh what mobility upward mobility yeah. yeah upward mobility that some soldiers and some peasants can do through the army they might not ever reach the kind of high up proper nobility but they can certainly gain uh, quite far which i think is probably true for a lot of the world despite you know uh, the reluctance for the nobility to kind of gel with peasants when it comes to war if someone's really good at it you want them in charge i think if anything especially with what we've talked about and what it seems to be when you get an idea of history is that in war you really do kind of need a meritocracy because if you don't you're going to get killed like you could you yeah. can only go so far by uh giving power and prestige and uh command ship to your friends and to your family if they're useless at it that's going to come back and hit you really badly yeah especially also if your enemy employs that meritocracy system you know like i guess mm. if you had two sets of armies fighting each other which both had stupid nobility at the top of it, it wouldn't matter so much but as soon as one person one army decides that no 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 we're going to promote the people who are actually good at this then they must have ripped through all those other traditional armies which were yeah. you know run by inbred chumps <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of you got to get that idea that there is certain times in history where you get just idiots running war and it's just all the devastation they cause because they have no idea what they're doing which is quite sad yeah. but i don't think that's the case here you've got some really uh, battle-hardened commanders here um, from kind of throughout the uh, throughout throughout China and from across the kind of caste spectrum. But so Huang Gai is kind of warming himself up, is is coming away from this big argument with his superiors, and he goes to, to check on his men. So just as the sun sets, he maybe checks his armor, checks his weapons, has a last swig of rice wine, and then joins his men at the squadron of ships they've been preparing and he then will tell them his plan because his plan is that he and they are about to defect and they're going to go join that massive army across the river and that's it yeah wait and i that, did not and, see that coming <laughs> and that is where we will end this walkthrough so many questions so, <laughs> so many questions i like the, I, that's why i like the walkthroughs because it just asks lots of questions and we don't answer any of them until much later possibly never <laughs> yeah. but hopefully i'll hopefully i'll answer them on this one um that's how we keep so yeah, you so, reeled in listener <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah yeah you don't find out till the end so yes so this is all happening of course on the day or i think the night before the battle of red cliffs or possibly you might know it as well you don't know because i know you don't know this but uh Others might know it as the Battle of Chibi, uh, which is, I think, possibly the maybe more uh, Chinese version of the name, or, or maybe slightly more historically accurate. Whereas Battle of Red Cliffs is a bit more. Uh, it's cool. colourful. Battle of it, the Red Cliffs. Yeah, it's very yes. vivid. I can really. It see is it. very. It is very. To, to clarify, not to not to build expectations too much. Red Cliffs is the place that it's fought. There isn't a cliff covered in blood, which is what I thought it was to begin with. But it, oh. it's still an interesting story. But yeah, yeah, it's not quite. I actually didn't think of that. <laughs> I was thinking oh, like I sort of like that sort of terracotta-y color cliff. Yeah, I, to be honest, I couldn't find out why the place is called Red Cliffs, but maybe that's what it is. It just has a lot of kind of clay and earth. 
yeah yeah yeah, that kind of rich red that you can sometimes get but i digress this is all happening the night before the battle of the red cliffs and this battle takes place at right at the start of the third century at a time when china was recovering from the fall of the han dynasty which was this long about 400 years long uh, period of china ruled by the han emperors so this is coming just as they are on their way out and their whole civilization is kind of collapsing it's kind of already collapsed and okay as as always happens when large massive empires start to collapse in on themselves there's a power vacuum and that is where our story kind of begins okay third century so third century ce third century ce yes okay so to contextualize <laughs> you're trying to get uh, everything in right in your head aren't yeah you? i'm literally just trying to think so like you've got um the claudian emperors in rome so you're looking at i think mm. marcus aurelius I think sort of gladiator times in europe that's around the same time period yeah um, is it it's not christian rome yeah is it i don't think oh that is a good question no i don't think it is yet this no, is right at the beginning to, to clarify it's, it's 208 so it's really right at the beginning oh, then, of, yeah, the, it's, of the third oh, century. When was Constantine? I don't know. I don't think so. I think the the Romans are still worshipping um, Jupiter and Mars mm. and Vulcan. But, but that's the Christians are still kind of, I mean, they're very much growing, but they are kind of minority. Just to set things in your kind of, I, I know a lot of our, of our listeners are from the West. So to kind of uh, get your head about what time period this is. But for China... This is a very important time in their history because what's about to happen is they're about to go into a time period that is known uh, as the Three Kingdoms, the period of the Three Kingdoms, which if you are a fan of video games, you might know of because there is a very, very popular, uh, somewhat good, somewhat terrible series called Dynasty Warriors that I played a lot as a kid. I think you played as well. I did. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Oh, my God, of course. Yeah. So <laughs> Dynasty you Warriors. you started the research? Were you just playing yeah. Dynasty Warriors? Uh, uh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Dynasty, Dynasty Warriors is set in this uh, period of history called The Three Kingdoms. There's also more recently been a Total War series, which I know you're a big fan of, uh, called Total War Three Kingdoms, which is set yeah. and lets you, like, play massive battles um, uh, of the period of the Three Kingdoms. But kind of the reason this is such a popular time for uh video games and books and everything to kind of focus in is because there is a very particular uh, source that people use for. So there is a historically accurate source known as the records of the three kingdoms, which is a contemporary history kind of of the time. I think a lot of these these things were recorded only a few decades after they actually happened. So really reliable, really great source for historians like you and me. But yeah. there's also uh, slightly more exciting tales that comes from the romance of the three kingdoms that was written oh. a thousand years later in the 14th century and is way more interesting to read because it's just it includes a lot of very bizarre fantastical a lot more colorful accounts of the period i love that i love that you know um in i always seem to turn this back to european history but um you know um all of the viking sagas so everything that's based on you know Ragnar's life and everything like that. Yeah, that was yeah. all written 300 years after they lived by Snorri Sturluson. So he he basically either made it up or okay, it could have been oral history written down, but it seems very unlikely to be historically accurate. <laughs> but it makes yeah. for such great drama. It's brilliant. That's kind of what history was, at least at the you know in the earlier 
in you know hundreds and thousands of years ago history was just telling stories and so if you want to embellish it a bit and make it a bit more interesting for instance i just wanted to give you a, a quick example of some of the embellishments that the romance of the three kingdoms does so there is a, a legendary warrior at this time called Xiao Hu Dun um, who's actually kind of linked to some of the characters in this but won't feature in our story and according to the records of the three kingdoms i.e the boring version he uh, lost an eye in a battle after getting hit by an arrow which is kind of a still kind of badass and he wears an eye patch afterwards and he's known as one eye still pretty cool but the romance of the three kingdoms took it a step further and said that after he was struck in the eye by that arrow he ripped out the arrow and his eye and then ate his eyeball in a kind of badass move and continued fighting in the battle so that's the kind of historical source i'm using uh for this and i've kind of relied a bit more on the romance one because it's more fun uh so if i'm wrong sue me or sue them and they're not around they were were literally a few hundred years before me touching my eyeballs (laughs) that really made me feel squeamish it's pretty gnarly isn't it I mean, yeah, that's what, pretty, it's who pretty eats dangling. their own eye? That's just ridiculous. Xiao Houdun <laughs> eats his motherfucking eye. I mean, you'd be terrified after that, so... It's like the most odd thing to do. Oh, yeah, I've just been hit in the, in the face with an arrow. No, I will not seek medical attention. I'm going to just eat the bit of my body that's been hit. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, don't know why... The guy. I mean, ripping it out is kind of cool. Eating it is a, just a bit weird. But, you know, power to him. Yeah. Maybe it helps. So to get back to the history, unfortunately, um, as I said, in the second century, China had become very, very divided. So towards the end, and this was the time when the Han dynasty was really falling apart. And there's one kind of really major reason why post-Han dynasty, the land was so divided. And it was because of a really dumb idea that the last Han emperor had right at the end of his, I was going to say tenure, which I don't think quite works for an emperor, but sure. Or go for it or rain more more rain that that makes more sense yeah so during the end of uh his reign um there were lots of these peasant uprisings kind of all across the empire all over china and he wasn't really in a great position to deal with them because his uh, government was very corrupt he didn't have a lot of money he was everything was mismanaged so to kind of counter this problem he had the brilliant idea to empower various provincial and regional governors to raise their own armies and deal with the rebels however they saw fit. So it sounds like a brilliant idea because it's just delegating the role to these other people who are definitely going to stay on your side. And power to him, it worked spectacularly well in crushing the rebels. Unfortunately for him, once these lords got this power, they didn't really want to give it back up. And given how they all kind of hated the the government at the time and the failing Han dynasty, they were very keen on keeping their power so that after a few more uprisings and a few kind of more civil wars within the Han dynasty, by the end, when the Han was collapsing, you just had kind of these massive regional warlords who were only loyal to themselves. And that is how we kind of lead into this kind of proto three kingdom period where actually there's more than three kingdoms there's all these tiny little squabbling states with these powerful warlords who have no one to stop them rolling over their smaller neighbors yeah that really backfired yeah it's really stupid i mean i I get what he was trying to do but like it's like when um you know when uh we did the episode on when the americans the black ships episode when they go into the bay 
um, and the shogun decides to call a vote to see what they should do about it with all of the uh, all the different parties. Mm. And they literally, half of them said yes, half said no. And it showed the weakness of the shogun. And it literally <laughs> led to the end of the shogunates. Like yeah. The end of the Tokugawa shogun was that. It's like, never delegate. If you're in a position of power, don't fucking give it up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we should come up with rules for, for dictators and leaders because there's some really dumb moves, like handing over all your power to other people. These other fairly powerful lords in this feudal system who were only below you on the kind of pyramid of a feudal system because you feel like it seems like you have more power than them. And so if that goes away, that pyramid is becoming a trapezium the analogy kind of lost momentum as i was going with it but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i get it you're right you're um, right we should do that <laughs> yeah uh so to talk about this battle i kind of want to give you a bit of background on the three main warlords who will take part in it and the first one possibly the most important one uh is a man named Sao Sao. so of these kind of new warlords that had arisen from the crumbling han dynasty uh, one of, if probably not the most powerful one, was Cao Cao. And he okay. was this very, very uh, infamous uh, general who kind of rose to power. He actually came from quite a powerful family to begin with. His father was the adopted son of the old emperor's chief eunuch. So to kind of describe... Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So, so to kind of give it, 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 it's a bit of a weird thing, but in, in the previous kind of, and uh, through a lot of Chinese history, the emperor kind of surrounded himself with these eunuchs who ended up in the Han dynasty having more power than the emperor himself. They were like these kind of uh, middle management kind of uh, people floating around the beacon of power that actually emboldened themselves. So the, and the most powerful of them decided to adopt uh, a man named Cao Song, uh, who had a son called Cao Cao. Oh, and so okay. it's kind of from this although it's kind of like a position of absolute power it's still a bit odd but certainly he was in the rooms and his father was in some of the most important rooms of the failing Han dynasty which meant Cao Cao was kind of in a perfect position to catapult himself uh, into more power once the Han dynasty fell. It's almost, and, he's in that like really good position of like being not too close that he'd be brought down with the government. Hundred percent dynasty, but then close enough to power because everyone knows him to be in a position of power. Makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. Good. And he was one of these uh, provincial governors who was given this huge amount of power so that he could crush the rebellions. And he did a fucking brilliant job of crushing his personal slice of the rebellions in his little region because Sal Sal. Uh, even from a young age, was very shrewd and very cunning, and was kind of already being seen to be this kind of master tactician. And unfortunately, coupled with that, as he grew older, was a really ruthless nature. He would, oh, he was, he had some of like, he, in just a few bit of me researching this guy, uh, some of the tactics he would use are including uh, burning down entire villages to deny his enemies food, which I think is probably more common in war than we'd like to think. Um, scorched earth policy, yeah. Very scorched earth policy. Um, but how about this? He was also known for burying captured enemy soldiers alive. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, but there does seem to be kind of a lot of defecting between armies, which links back to our walkthrough from earlier. And possibly he wants this idea that if you don't defect in time, you're going to get buried alive, which is pretty fucked up. And yeah. then possibly worst of all, and I think I, I don't know how many cases there are this, I only found one, but in one battle, 
he, uh, after a, a, a particularly bloody skirmish, he ordered the lips and noses of all of the fallen enemy soldiers cut off and then scattered around the edge of the enemy camp. So these, oppo these opposing soldiers had to march out and then were suddenly surrounded by the lips and noses of their fallen comrades. Which is... hurt this guy. This is fucking awful. This is terrible. Everything you've said so far in this episode has been so much more brutal than I was expecting. I think it's because <laughs> I played the, the Dynasty games. There was very, if any, blood. It was it's kind of yeah. lots of flying around. It's um, very and anime and very, oh, you take this. Oh, it's not really scorched earth, proper like horror tactics. Uh, but that's yeah. what this guy was. I think the best, uh, the what I get from this guy and the best way I can describe him is he is a very Tywin Lannister type character. Uh, if you've watched or read Game of Thrones, you know, he is that kind yeah. of ruthless, all-powerful general who is very effective. And he's not cruel to his people, per se. He is just very good at what he does uh, and very good at fighting his enemies. And because he actually did have a kind of good policy, a lot of the... Um, the kind of the northern part of China that he would go on to conquer, he would do all these kind of like internal programs to rejuvenate the world. You know, he wanted to get put people back to work. He's this very kind of pro not I was going to say progressive. That's not the word. Like very like uh, forward thinking. You know, he wanted to get a lot out of people, but he would absolutely decimate anyone who got in their way. Got in his way. The fact that you're telling me that this guy's the progressive part of the story shows the brutality <laughs> progressive's the, of the progressive's three kingdoms the, yeah progressive's the wrong word i'd say he's he's just a you know he he, he he's very unlike the previous han dynasty that were just corrupt okay. and were you know were poorly organized and were mismanaging the china were doing a really bad job he's almost the opposite of that he can deal with his enemies and he can rule uh, his lands a bit with an iron fist but also with a smart mind um, okay, in right. fact, and and to be fair, some of this might be kind of warped because the romance of the Three Kingdoms really portrays Cao Cao as a villainous tyrant. So it's okay. kind of up in the air whether or not. I mean, it also casts some people as heroes, and I think there's a very low chance that they really were that heroic. But Cao Cao seems to almost live up to his name in being this kind of ruthless, all-powerful general he's not really a tyrant because okay. he is he's almost given rule by the last hand dynasty so it's it's hard to really call him a tyrant but he's he's on that kind of level so Cao Cao, yeah. after the fall of the hand dynasty he goes on an expansion campaign to kind of conquer all uh territory across northern china which is where he was based originally and luckily he actually is able to capture the 15 year old emperor so the kind of last of the han line uh, because there is this still kind of idea that you know similar to the uh, emperor in japan there is this kind of mandate of heaven to rule and so he still kind of needs that legitimacy but once he's got the emperor this 15 year old kid in his possession he can do whatever he want on behalf of the old Han Dynasty, yeah. even though he doesn't give a fuck about the Han Dynasty. He just wants to build his own empire. Yeah, you need that legitimacy. I get that. That happens a lot in in a regime change. Yeah, 100%. History. In fact, I think the same 15-year-old uh, emperor has just come from being uh, from fleeing another dictator who tried to take over, less successfully than Cao Cao, but another tyrant who captured him and then declared himself ruler of all China. So... It's it's not actually. I don't think it'd be that fun being an emperor. It sounds like a real drag. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. 
So Cao Cao is on this campaign and he takes over most of northern China and now he sets his sight on southern China. However, there are two other warlords that arise to oppose him. And that's where I'm going to move on to next. Okay, so... We've got Cao Cao in the north. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Cao Cao in the north and two in the south opposing Cao Cao, at least at this time. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So the first one I'll talk about is a man named Sun Xuan, who is a bit of an interesting guy. So he is kind of an inheritor of a kingdom that was already on its way uh, by the time he inherited it. So he had a father, Sin Jian, um, who is more of a contemporary to uh, Cao Cao. He also fought in some of the wars uh, that happened at the end of the Han Dynasty. Uh, and he, this this man, Sun Jian, started to carve out a kingdom in eastern China, similar to Cao Cao. Uh, but he died, uh, and then his son, Sun Se, took over, who also died. So Sun Se's younger brother, Sun Xuan, ends up becoming uh, the kind of leader of this eastern kingdom of China. So it's a bit confusing. Okay. Um, and what's really interesting is, some people might be able to guess this, These, this family supposedly are descendants of Sun Tzu, who is the person who wrote The Art of War. So, yes. cool, like, I don't know if it's technically true, or it's like they just say it is because it's good for their brand, and obviously their name, their family name is Sun, so it kind of fits together. Um, yeah. But who knows? I, mean, I like it. Let's see like how. Um, let's see if that blood runs uh, true in the battle that you're about to tell us about. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think I think it should. Um, but yeah, so Sun Sun Xuan is a lot younger than Cao Cao. He's 18 when he comes to comes of age, and he's about 26 at the time of our story. So he's a much okay. younger guy. Cao Cao is a much more battle hardened commander, um, whereas Sun Xuan is younger. He's considerably more likable he's considered to be a fair ruler he valued his subordinate strengths he treated them with great respect possibly i mean we were talking about um uh Hong Gai at the beginning and you know his ability to rise through the ranks possibly came from sun Xuan and his family's respect for people of lower class you know they were more willing to let uh more lower class people rise through the ranks especially if they sure, were sure. good at what they did yeah okay so we got so Cao Cao, the big baddie in the north of China. You've got who's a bit older, and then you got Sung Xuan in yes. the east of China, who's like a bit of a badass. Yeah, a bit younger, bit of a hot shot, you know, Tzu, dude. Kind okay. of a Sun Tzu. And he's got he's got a lot going for him, and he's kind of inherited the this people. kind. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a, he's kind of considered a bit of a cooler dude. Um, I think him being young helps with that. And he hasn't actually really encountered any problems with Cao Cao at the moment because by this okay. time, Cao Cao has only been really dealing with kind of more local threats and other threats to the north. He hasn't fully moved south yet. And so Sun Xuan is very aware that Cao Cao is in the north. He's this big, terrifying presence that probably will attack him at some point. But he's not sure and he's got different advisors advising different things, whether you need to like kind of placate Cao Cao or whether you need to fight him all sorts of things and so it's around this time so 208 uh, around about when the battle will take place Sun Xuan uh, kind of has his decision made for him when a different warlord calls for his help and this warlord is a man named Liu Bei who I'll move on to now Liu Bei I know that name I Liu know Bei. that name from Dynasty Warriors for sure yes <laughs> I, I'm gonna yeah. look it up later but I definitely remember Liu Bei 
yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's so there's Liu Bei. Uh, just to clarify, that is if you did play the different games, that is a different character to Lu Bu, who is another character, a slightly less yeah, important, yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Lu Bu too. I remember Lu Bu. Lu Bu's the Lu kind Bei. of badass ultimate warrior, but he doesn't really have his own. He's he's another warlord, but he's more just a one man army. Um, whereas Liu Bei is this other warlord who has called upon Sun Xuan uh, for his aid. Now, Liu Bei's story is a bit more complicated and a bit more interesting. So he is a warlord who gained a lot of renown during the downfall of the Han Dynasty, as the other two did, or as Cao Cao and then Sun Xuan's father, Sun Jian, did, uh, particularly in a rebellion that was called the Yellow Turban Rebellion, which was this particularly vicious uh, you, you're noticing all of this from Dynasty Warriors. This is not the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how accurate it was. I just thought it was a stupid game. No, no, it's actually, it, it, yeah, it's yeah. pretty good, actually. It's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, so Liu Bei kind of is building this renown. However, unlike other warlords, he comes from a much humbler background, more similar to Huang Gai that we spoke about at the beginning. So Liu Bei is a very, very distant relative to the imperial family, so distant that when his father becomes impoverished and then dies, their whole family is just left out to dry. They don't have any support. And actually Liu Bei had to sell shoes and straw mats to feed himself and his mother, which is a very wow. lovely story. Um, that is very think, humble. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of adds to his legend. And actually it might, I don't know if, uh, I, from what it seems that that story is correct, but there's also kind of a building on this in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, because in that slightly more fantastical tale, Liu Bei is portrayed as a kind of paragon of benevolent rule. He is a kind of beloved ruler, loved by the common people, uh, really kind to his people, understands where they're coming from, and looks to protect his people in this kind of great ruler way. Much different to Cao Cao and still kind of similar to Sun Xuan. You know, he is this kind of, he's almost like a populist leader because he doesn't have this like lineage in the same way that uh, Sun Xuan does. He is much more of the people risen up to help defend them. Okay, interesting. Okay, and what, so where was his kingdom? Where, where? So he doesn't have a kingdom yet. And actually, a lot of his uh, early years are spent in the north, kind of the northeast, which means invariably he is in constant opposition with Cao Cao as Cao Cao is expanding into, uh, expanding from his uh, province into the rest of northern China. So although there's a bit of back and forth, Liu Bei does actually fight for Cao Cao for a little bit but very rapidly uh, kind of goes against him, goes to protect the people, or at least the kind of more romantic stories that he is the man, kind of the thorn in Cao Cao's side. As Cao Cao tries to roll through northern China, Liu Bei is kind of trying to protect the people. And he kind of gathers this following. But after too many battles and, quite frankly, a lot of losses to Cao Cao, because he's not quite the tactical genius Cao Cao is, Liu Bei moves to kind of central China to kind of find refuge with some other of his uh, family members. There's a man named uh, Liu Bao, who he kind of gets and um, gets a bit of protection from, uh, except Liu Bao, who I think is kind of a relative, probably a distant relative. Liu Bao doesn't trust Liu Bei because he's possibly too popular, which is not okay. a great, re was, you know, probably could have got more out of him. So he kind of stations him at the north of his regime 
as a bulwark to Sal Sal. So this is, you know, this is a general who I don't Fair. trust, but I know he's been fighting Sal Sal and I'm worried about Sal Sal. So I'll leave him at the top of my kingdom and he can Zane. just keep me safe. Uh, so, Le- yeah. you know, Liu Bei was just kind of a general. He's a bit of a warlord. He doesn't have his own kingdom or anything like that, but he is okay. gathering a following. Um, Clearly then... quite charismatic in some way. Yeah, very charismatic, very charismatic. Probably still very likable uh, in a way that maybe Sal Sal isn't but Salso is certainly very well respected and then people Sun fear Salso people yeah. fear Salso people love uh, Liu Bei and I think there's a bit of both when it comes to Sun Chuan because he kind of has this legacy but is also a bit of a nice guy so he's kind of a bit more of a wild card I'd say I do love how like uh, like these golden ages of dynasties like um, well like three kingdoms but also in you know the Roman times that we have full personalities of people who lived thousands of years ago all before the collapse of Rome and the collapse of China, or, or rather the um, when China completely cuts itself off from the world. Yeah. Like you have these incredible things, and then you just get nothing. Nothing yeah, for yeah, thousands yeah. of years. And then up they come again, these personalities. It's just really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, you want to live in a time period where there are historians to write your tale, because if you're not, no one's going to remember you, and it's super sad. But... Um... But yeah, I mean, these these characters are very well remembered throughout Chinese history, partly because of the records of the Three Kingdoms, but probably more because of the romance of the Three Kingdoms, which tells them in a more interesting way. So uh, Liu Bei is kind of thrown uh, again out of the frying pan and into the fire um, when his ally Liu Bao dies suddenly and his successor, Liu Kong, uh, surrenders to Cao Cao and kind of gives up Liu Bei. Uh, so he's kind of completely capitulated. He's terrified of Cao Cao. So Liu Bei has to flee further south to China and is he needs more allies and he needs some way of fighting off Cao Cao because he knows how big a threat Cao Cao is. So one of his advisors suggests this other guy, this great guy who's in eastern China, Sun Xuan, maybe you should join forces and fight Cao Cao. And that is what happens. In 208, after lots of negotiations, a very shaky alliance is formed between Liu Bei and Sun Xuan, joining kind of eastern China to more central China in this big moment to resist this looming presence of Cao Cao, who is on the urge of rolling over all of China and taking over everything. This is a very important battle for sort of the fate of China in 208. Very much so. This is one of the most important battles, I think, uh, of this time period, if not the... I know there's another one right around here called the Battle of Guangdu, which is also very important. But I think this very much is the moment where China's destiny for the next few hundred years is settled. You know, is it going to be the Cao Cao China or is it going to be something more unusual and a bit more dynamic, uh, which is spoiler alert is what it becomes because it becomes the three kingdoms it doesn't become the one big f in south south kingdom so yeah yeah it's it's just like um it, this it feels very much like the tokugawa episode that you did the samurai yeah yeah, it's yeah. The same thing you've got this huge battle about to happen and then the tokugawa take over it feels that similar in some ways similar similar yeah. i mean you know these are these you know i feel like every country in the world has their times in history where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh division in the country and so there are a lot of battles you know um as you said the uh what was it called the what is it sengoku, called, that period the sengoku, sengoku period, period of japan is very like this we in, in the uk have of course the the war of the roses 
um, and some other parts English like Civil that. War. <laughs> the English Civil yeah. War, you know, it's well, I'd say because it's it's more about where there's lots of smaller groups that are kind of vying for power. So the the English Civil War is a bit more two sided, as as the same as other, you know, more civil wars. Whereas this is kind of a period where you've got because you know, I mean, the the um, War of the Roses is the same. It's two big things fighting, and then right at the end. Tudors come in and go, yeah, fuck it, we win. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to get into all of those yeah, I'm now. breezing yeah, past yeah, history there. Yeah, I remember I remember <laughs> my GCSE history. Um, so it is now the winter of 208, and Cao Cao is moving his massive army south, intent of conquering the rest of China. Uh, but the Ooh. one... There you go. <laughs> But he's got a kind of big obstacle in his way, and that obstacle is the Yangtze River, which is this massive river. It's the longest river in Asia. It's like third in the world, uh, and it really it divides China between the north and south. So this is kind of his uh, major obstacle to get over. And as he's moving south, he will suddenly notice that there are two more obstacles in his way of two big warlords coming on from the south. But Cao Cao has brought a massive force to take the south. He knows this is going to be a huge campaign. And he is this, you know, he's the kind of figure throughout history who has some of the biggest armies relative to the to the, to the size of people. Um, according to his estimate, he had 800,000 men, which is a ridiculous what? number um, and is largely considered to be an exaggeration. And actually was we know that because he got he sent a letter to Sun Quan saying, I have 800,000 men surrender now and I'll just kill Liu Bei. Because he's not, oh he's not God. offering that to Liu Bei because he doesn't like him. But Sun Xuan is like almost like a third party who could just be ignored, kind of. Uh, but obviously, so it's kind of that like dividing the 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 alliance immediately. You can totally see why he's not going to give that to Liu Bei because from what you said to me at the beginning of this, he doesn't like defectors, and Liu Bei worked for him for a while. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Liu Bei defected. has kind of betrayed him. Uh, he's been yeah. a thorn in his side. He knows also. He, that won't work with Liu Bei. Liu Bei will continue to fight him until he's dead. There's no way sure. he can convince him to surrender. Sun Xuan, on the other hand, is a kind of third party. They haven't really fought properly. There's been a bit of skirmishing between their lesser lords, but nothing major at this point. So arguably, most likely, uh, the actual uh, number that Cao Cao brought south was 250,000 men, which is still fucking huge. That's like, massive. That's still, still a massive, massive force. It's bigger than... I was looking it up, and I, I was trying to work out... Well, like the next thing it's bigger than uh but it's it's kind of hard to say but it's it's bigger than you know it's similar ish to a lot of the major battles that rome fought you know you know that the roman empire well, i'm just thinking about it a legion in rome is six thousand men so you're talking about over 40 legions of men or yeah. like 40 yeah. 40 and a bit i can't quite yeah. do the maths it's a That's huge insane it's a huge army and really quite terrifying. However, there are a few caveats because South South's army is kind of racing down south. I don't. It might be because uh, the he knows this alliance is forming, but also he knows he wants to capitalize on Liu Bao's death, who's just happened. So that was uh, Li Bu. It's good timing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good time to move south. So he's really marching his soldiers hard. They're also slightly more undisciplined because they're kind of grabbings from all these different kingdoms he's conquered, and some of them are actually old soldiers who used to serve Liu Bei. About 80,000 of them are ex-Liu Bei followers who have just lost and have been kind of pressed into Cao Cao's army, which is a that's bit of a weird tactic. Be, yeah, that's yeah. stupid. 
Like their loyalty will be very questionable. Basically, they are facing up against their lord. Yeah. But even with those issues, he's still kind of five to one because Liu Bei and Sun Xuan have brought only about fifty thousand men. So even with undisciplined soldiers who are exhausted, five to one are pretty rough odds to face yeah. down. That's so many men as well in one yes. battle. Yeah, so almost a... three hundred thousand people fought him in this battle. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. Um, uh, and actually, Liu Bei and the, so the defenders, uh, this kind of defense alliance. So their host, uh, although much smaller, were very well rested. Uh, they also knew the terrain. So right around the Yangtze River is a lot of swampy land, like swampy terrain. And Cao Cao's army from the north, the kind of colder north, were not used to this. So they were exhausted. They were kind of sick. They didn't have. They were. They were kind of poorly supplied because of the fast march south. Whereas the much smaller force from the defense team, the defense team, that's a weird way to put it, but from the defenders, they were uh, well supplied, well rested. Uh, a few of them had been fighting Cao Cao under Liu Bei for a long time. So they were, you know, raring to go. So it's a much kind of more cohesive, maybe not cohesive because it's also two very separate groups. So it's difficult to say, but they kind of had a, li- they had a bit on their side, but not enough to really counter five to one odds which is yeah. rough by that anyone's margin. I could just imagine Sun Xuan like, turning up uh, to the battle with like, Liu Bei's forces and just sort of handing out pamphlets of the art of war. Say, just remember, <laughs> guys, this is the manual. This is how remember, we're going to do Remember, guys, my grandfather t- told me this, so take this. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like they're much better prepared than, uh, you know, it's not all about strength of numbers, discipline, oh, well-restedness. Can you imagine how annoying he would be in those bloody meetings? Like Liu Bei's been (laughs) fighting Cao Cao for very long. They've all got these, you know, great uh, generals, which I'll move on to a sec because they've got some really famous generals working for them. But whenever they're talking about this 26-year-old kid's just like, well, you know, when my ancestor Sun Tzu fought battles, he he did this. And they're all like, yes, we know. We've all read the book. Like, it's not anything. He'd be probably quite annoying. If he wasn't so likable, they'd probably kick him out. Um, Actually, what's actually really interesting, maybe that is what happened because... Uh, Sun Xuan doesn't direct his army uh, personally. He delegates to his master tactician, uh, Zhao Yu, who will become important later in the story. So this is kind of a kind of older figure, has been fighting for the Sun family for a very long time. Uh, he's actually the commander of Hung Gai, who we spoke to at the beginning. Um, but this yes. Zhao Yu is this very, very famous general, a very powerful man. And also fighting for the defenders in service to Liu Bei is uh, possibly the most legendary general of this period, a man named Guan Yu, who you might know from Dynasty Warriors, and you might know from other games because he's referenced in other fiction, stuff like that, because this guy was so famous for his skill as a warrior that a few centuries later, he was deified into the god of war and protection. He became a god. I mean, you know, people started to worship him as a god. Because he, he was so <laughs> famous. Oh, I don't know. We, we can't confirm nor deny. Yeah, um, true, that's true. how badass this guy was. So, you know, a smaller force, but some really heavy hitters there. And some people that could really inspire the soldiers through their legendary deeds. 
I'm starting to feel like, although there's a numerical disadvantage, the fact that they have the the, <laughs> the soon to be <laughs> god of war on their they side, <laughs> and that all these guys need to be really, really good, like lovely little people, and there's a really big mm. baddie. I do feel like you're setting this up for, <laughs> for what I think. Is I mean, happen. it wouldn't. It wouldn't be that kind of tale uh, if it w- we wouldn't be talking about it if it was just a complete rollover. However, remember, the defenders are about to uh, notice a very major defection from our friend Huang Gai, who is readying himself to defect to Cao Cao, which ha- actually yeah. is something that was quite common. Cao Cao, similar to as we were saying earlier, you know, he would bury uh, people who didn't defect early enough alive. So there is a lot of people at this time because the loyalties are so up in the air. You know, no one has this generational loyalty to any one lord because a few generations ago, they were all loyal to the Han Dynasty, which is no more. So changing loyalties is quite common at this time. And so if battles are going the other way, it's not uncommon for just whole squadrons and commanders to completely defect and join the other team. So... That's where we are. And Cao Cao has this big problem is because while he has this much larger force, the enemy it has set themselves up on the south bank of the Yangtze River, whereas he is on the north bank, which unfortunately it wasn't it didn't freeze over, so they couldn't just charge over. Go watch our first go listen to our first episode. Although that was maybe a bit of a spoiler <laughs> for it, but go listen to no, our first right. episode if you haven't. Um so he needs to make it across. And it's at this point that Cao Cao, who is this undistributed undisputedly famously talented general makes a very big mistake because what he doesn't he isn't that good at is naval warfare because he's from northern china he's been fighting land battles his entire life he's not really that great of a naval general i was gonna say that general's wrong naval admiral you know he's he naval warrior we're naval tactician we'll say okay Naval tactician. Naval strategist. So this is where he kind of makes a big mistake because he needs to get his men across. So what he thinks is that he'll bring down his massive navy because, of course, he's also got a massive navy and he'll fill up the gap uh, between the the his side of the Yangtze River and the enemy and just have all his ships align and link together so he can march Bitch. his men across and form right. this kind of bridge of ships. And the really dumb thing he does is that in order to make this kind of massive floating fortress uh, more stable, he lashes all of his ships together, which certainly makes them a lot more stable, makes it a lot easier to get his men across so they can start moving quite quickly. But it does make the whole fleet a lot less maneuverable because, I mean, kind of entirely unmovable because they can't really move around as one. That's not really how ships work. Uh, unless they get very lucky with some you know, massive hurricane or something like that. But they are very much stuck in that side kind of like setup. And so while he is moving his huge force across the river, the defenders come up with a plan. I was just thinking, like, in terms of the um, lashing of ships together, it instantly brought to mind, I think it's the Battle of Salamis, which is the ancient Greek battle between Persians and the, uh, and the Athenian Spartan force and the athenians i'm pretty sure they have their ships like like that sort of like a massive platform right across the hellespont or wherever it was happening Mm. and so that the spartans could then cross and and jump on the ships of the persians and basically kick ass do what the spartans do best 
Yeah. Um, and that worked for them. So maybe it's maybe maybe it'll, maybe it'll work Sal. for Sal And I haven't have hinted that, that this H-Gree. might not work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, but, possibly, I mean, that happened, I mean that's his problem is the fact that he's got this massive land fighting force and he can't get across to fuck up the other guys. So oh, I he see, because there's this... like bottlenecks, because are there no bridges? No, there's no bridge uh, anywhere near here, um, or at okay. least not one that could carry his entire force. I mean, this is also a massive river. Uh, at this point, it's like half a mile wide. So oh, wow. it's not, okay. it, it'll take a, you know, I don't think bridges can get, that big maybe even no they could definitely do it now with suspension bridges but back then i'm not sure if you could have a bridge that big um don't quote me on that unless there's very because chinese engineers were geniuses so maybe they did but that isn't something that he can rely on so he makes this kind of land bridge he makes this uh ship bridge that becomes this massive floating fortress and it seems like quite a smart move and actually it's at this time which he gets even more good news when he receives a message from one Huang Gai saying, I would like to defect to your army. I've had this massive disagreement with uh, Sun Xuan and Liu Bei. They're all idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. Sun Xuan keeps banging on about his ancestor Sun Tzu. I want to join your team. And because this is a very common occurrence, Cao Cao is like, yep, yeah, great. Come bring your ships, join them to our uh, our massive floating fortress, and we'll crush your ex-commanders. However, Huang Gai actually has no intention of betraying his lord. And actually, this is a plan cooked up by the master tactician Zhao Yu, his commander. And he's actually following secret orders to send a message to Cao Cao so that he can move unattacked towards this massive floating fortress and because this is a very and this is like you said before very sun tzu they've been losing they've been have been hemorrhaging uh soldiers this whole time because of desertion so they decide to flip that on its head and use it against sal sal hey okay clever i like it i mean very risky pretty the guys defecting or pretty risky defecting yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll see they don't get quite far into in their defection because as they're floating towards this massive ship fortress that's carrying all these soldiers across, uh, about halfway they are bene- they get a, they get a huge benefit from this very strong wind that blows them straight towards their target, and just before they reach them, Huang Gai orders the ships to be torched that have just so happened to be filled with oil and rags, and they he and his sailor buddies hightail it off, and these now fire ships crash into the side of this floating, very wooden fortress that is the key to Cao Cao's forward attack. And the flames burst overboard and start lighting this whole thing on fire. Wow. So, question. Yes. How much of Cao Cao's force, have you started moving the force over the the bridge of boats? It's unclear. I think there was, I think there's some movement across, but it's kind of early on. It's not like they've waited for the perfect time where all the armies are crossed, because obviously they don't really want any of the soldiers getting across. And it seems like actually there weren't many. However, the effect it had on Cao Cao's army is really like visceral because they are tired, exhausted. Many of them have split loyalties. They're not huge fans of Cao Cao. And suddenly they watch in horror as their entire Navy fleet goes up in flames really quickly. Really? Uh, so the whole thing goes up? The whole thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it Holy shit. very quickly okay. becomes this, like, inferno 
uh, that's really terrific. And I don't, I don't even think that's like a poetic license from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. If you do want some poetic license from the from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, supposedly that strong wind that blew uh, Huang Gai's ships towards uh, the floating fortress was summoned by one of Liu Bei's generals through some really? mystical magic. So if you want oh, to believe nice. that, that's sure. But regardless, <laughs> it was a very smart tactical move. And I think that is really part of the history. Maybe that's so, why it's called the Red Cliffs, because it's um, the flames. Possibly, but again, I'm fairly sure Red Cliffs is the name of the place, so I don't know if it quite oh, okay. works out. But it's a cool, but it, yeah, I like that. Because it does become kind of a red cliff, I guess, a bursting, flaming red cliff. Yeah. So uh, the second part of this plan is a much more straightforward part, because actually in this chaos, Zhao Yu has snuck across the river with a much smaller light force of cavalry that now attacks Cao Cao's main camp. And so although they are still pretty outnumbered, the flames and the smoke and the screams of the burning ships completely rattle Cao Cao's undisciplined force, and very quickly they go into full retreat. So this really? small force, and then once that's happened... Liu Bei is able to bring up the rear and suddenly the whole army of the defenders is able to cross the river quite easily. You know, they've still got ships and just go straight for these this massive army that is now in full retreat because they are terrified of what's happened. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So that's what I was wondering, because like 250,000 men, there's a reason why um roman legions are six thousand men each because you can then control that many men with the mm. two hundred fifty thousand, like it's it's just a horde it's not mm. an army anymore especially and back they're then. they're they're quite undisciplined as well and also i mean part undisciplined because there's not a huge amount of training um but morely more to do with the fact that they are exhausted they are sick from this swamp they're not used to some of them used to fight for Leo Bay, and now they're just watching their entire navy and their comrades go up in flames. I mean, it's a really yeah. horrifying image. And now you've it's got this battle-hardened Zhou Yu charging in with full, with a kind of full force, this cavalry charge that would just freak you out. And so Cao Cao's army goes in full retreat, and actually they end up losing far more men in the retreat than they did in the actual battle because the defenders just harry them. Uh, they're, you know, racing to try and get away. They leave men behind. They're still getting sick. And it's kind of the slaughter comes after the battle. And it's yeah. just as they're in full retreat and Cao Cao flees. And his, Cao Cao grand, okay. his grand southern uh, conquest ends in failure. And he goes up to the north. Does he? Okay. Never to so he be seen again? Or? No, well, so not quite. He does kind of take this as a major loss, and it doesn't seem like he really considers the possibility of taking over all of China ever again. And this is after this battle, we really do settle into the Three Kingdoms dynamic, because Liu Bei has gained so much res like renown, and the fact that his uh, relative Liu Bao... Uh, he had died. His son had surrendered to Cao Cao. But you know, and and now that Sun Xuan and Sun and Liu Bei have won this great victory, they're able to kind of carve up what's left of China. And Liu Bei is kind of granted by Sun Xuan a huge chunk of China to rule over, and he will go on to expand it. And unfortunately, that alliance does break down after a few years, uh, and you get this really uh -huh. interesting period in history where you have Cao Cao, who is defeated but still probably the most powerful of all three in the north you have sun Xuan uh, reeling from his fantastic victory at red cliffs 
uh, in the east and you have Liu Bei who has become this like beacon of hope for some people uh, and has now turned himself into a kind of king and would go on to be kind of an emperor in his own little kingdom to the kind of west central part of China okay interesting wow that is a massive thing I'm just thinking in terms of um what you've just done there with that battle which is Mm. really interesting thank you for telling us about it um you're very welcome is we started this series with a war uh which uh, with a battle that involved ships being defeated by ice and you've ended it with ships (laughs) being defeated by fire so you've just done good a series started with ice and end in fire so the battle of ice and fire song of ice and fire vibes well done we are geniuses Step aside, George R. R. Martin. Is awesome. I did think when I was researching this, there is kind of parallels to our to our first episode. Please, if if we're going to spoil it a bit more, so if you haven't listened to it, stop now and go listen to it because it's a really amazing one. But yeah, that battle—it's such an amazing visual, and that's what I think really kills people and so effective in war is it's almost beyond the propaganda. It's the morale of troops, and if you just see. You complete. You have become completely outplayed. You will surrender, yeah. and that's what happened to uh, the Dutch. That's right. Yeah, the Dutch in your Austrian episode. Austrian Dutch, they, but yes, Austrian <laughs> Dutch. Yeah, yeah. When they realised they've been defeated by a cavalry charge while they were on the water, whereas in this case it's just this like conflagration of fire and screams and all their navy going up. Um, that just rattles Cao Cao's men. And, you, you know, yeah, Cao, you Cao, Cao orders a tr- retreat, so he knows the the gig is up. He will not be able to rally his men to f- be able to fight them off. And in, in the back of his, his head, it's interesting, I wonder whether or not he made very quick, cold calculations and went, right, I've lost this, I need to get back up north with as many men as I can, otherwise I won't be able to hold them north. Like he, yeah. he's, he probably as soon as re, as soon as he saw his massive fleet go up in flames, he knew his chances of ruling all of China were gone. He'd never be able to do that. So wow. he just very quickly understands that and then flees north to protect what he still has. And he goes on and rules northern China. After he dies, his son actually turns. He names himself emperor of their little kingdom is called Wei. And actually, what's interesting is although Cao Cao was never an emperor, posthumously he's He's, his name is like the uh, ancient original emperor of Wei or something like that. Like they give him this kind of posthumous title as this kind of former, you know, he should have been an emperor and like... Julius Caesar vibes. Yeah, Augustus very much Caesar. so. Julius Caesar. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Cao Cao's defeat here is so monumental for China and will shape the three kingdoms to come, which is a very bloody bit of history. And as... Weird as it is, I mean, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms would see this as a success because these heroic figures of Sun Xuan and Liu Bei defeat this tyrant of Cao Cao. And although you could look at it from that way, Sun Xuan and Liu Bei were probably maybe not as bad, but still very bad, you know, very, you know, dictatorial tyrants who just wanted to control the world and control their little bits of it. Yeah, it was a brutal time. And the loss Cao Cao sustained really meant that we end up in this period where no one no one figure can rule all of china which leaves it in this very divided state which causes more battles which causes more death so weirdly maybe it would have been better for south to win as horrible that is but maybe it wouldn't because we can't just roll over to dictators who want to rule the whole world exactly and also as you said history is written by the victors or i said maybe 
Like Sound Sound may well have been. I think someone else said that before you. I don't think that was a <laughs> that wasn't a quote from you. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. I meant earlier in the episode. Sure. No, I, I meant um, Sal, if Sound Sound had won, you'd hear how awful Lou Bay was, you know, or how awful. Very possibly. Yeah. So you know, it's one of those things. But no, I I I think, yeah, very interesting, very interesting indeed. And yeah, but yeah, I don't have anything else to say on it. I think it's it's a very it's interesting a- battle. It's a very, and, and very, it's a very, very cool, interesting and huge battle that takes place that I think a lot of uh, people nowadays in China and a lot of Asia will know about, but it's just something we don't learn about. And it's a shame because it's so interesting and it's so, I think it, it we lose something by not learning about other cultures' history because you realise how similar we all are. Like there were some really amazing cultural differences, but then you realise we're all still human and there's so many similarities. Like this you could just change some of the names and it would sound like a battle, as you say, from ancient Greece. Or it could be a battle from, you know, more medieval England. Like, it's all similar Rome, sort of Vikings. things. I've literally made so many different allusions to, to what's been happening in Europe at this time. It's so Yeah, similar. exactly. So I think yeah, there's... And that's about humanity as well. It's about how human nature behaves itself or, or yeah. misbehaves, really. Yeah, perhaps not the best bit of human nature because it's no, all not pretty at all. bloody. The, but it's... The worst. It's 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 very interesting and has a cool trick which I liked. Uh, yeah, well and, done. And luckily, and and Huang Gai turned out he was a good dude, or at least not a traitor. Exactly, exactly. I was worried that you'd done a traitor's uh, one there, but no, very good. We've dude. not done that. Thank we haven't so- done a walkthrough from a bad guy yet, have we? Not yet, but that can be happening in our next series, which you guys will hear about um, in our next... Well, we don't know when it will come out, but we've got to get this one done first. No idea. <laughs> we were, we're not even 100% sure when this one will come out, but probably, I'd say in the next few weeks, but obviously you're listening to so it has come out and you have no idea when we recorded this, so that means nothing to you. However, it should be sometime soon, and it's whatever. I think we're aiming for May 2022, so if, if it comes out in 2023, we've definitely missed it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, I think that's the aim. But I mean, I don't know why I'm telling you this, listener. You know when it's come out because you're listening to us. Yeah, you're talking to people in the future. It's kind of weird. Very meta. Um, but yeah, guys, thank you so much for staying with us throughout this, uh, this battle series. This has been uh, series 3.5, we're calling it. Um, and we <laughs> yeah. will be back very soon with our, um, our fourth series, which we are pretty certain is going to be on Cities. Um, but we'll we'll update you guys on Instagram and let us know what you liked about this series and what you'd like to see more of because we always like hearing from you. And yeah. Uh, yeah, Patrick, you absolutely smashed that. That was a really interesting battle to finish on. Thanks. It was a really enjoyable one, mainly because I played Dynasty Warriors and I have a very clear idea in my head of what all these characters look like, but in a very anime over the top style. So if you yeah. if you do want, I don't think we're going to put it on our Instagram because, or maybe one of the slides, I'll show a few pictures of their of their things. But if you want some ideas in your head of who these people look or what these guys look like and don't actually want to know what they look like look up their 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 character models from the video games because they're hilariously over the top yeah yeah (laughs) awesome well the only thing to say is thank you so much for listening guys um thank you so much like wherever you're listening and uh we'll see you or you'll hear from us very soon very soon see you guys bye